Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, a phone call to his cousin's friend from high school, Aaron Sorkin, changed the trajectory of his life and in some ways the trajectory of our lives too. Welcome the extraordinary Josh Molina to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is Josh Molina. Josh made his professional debut as an actor in the Broadway production of Aaron Sorkin's A Few Good Men. He went on to star as Jeremy Goodwin in Sorkin's critically acclaimed television series Sports Night. Later, Josh co-starred as Will Bailey on The West Wing. He also appears in the films The American President and Malice. Some of his many other TV credits include In Plain Sight, Scandal, and Shameless. He is a co-creator of the Bravo hit series Celebrity Poker Showdown and the co-host and co-creator of the wonderful podcast, The West Wing Weekly. Not Winkly, The West Wing Weekly. Um, I, I say this to him all the time, but he's truly one of the funniest human beings on the planet and one of the most wonderful. I am so thrilled to welcome Josh Molina, an old friend to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is so nice. I um I feel like this podcast has been the best excuse to get in touch with old friends and find out how they are, especially now. We're recording this in March of 2021. You know so well that podcasts live forever and are found at all different times, but it is significant that we are about a year into this pandemic as you and I catch up with each other. So I guess first and foremost, before we talk about the origin story of what made you someone who comes into millions of homes weekly on people's television sets. Um, tell me a little bit about how you have navigated this last year. Were you and your family healthy? Did you get COVID? Where do I find you right now? Sure, you're nice to ask. I live at home in Los Angeles with my wife of 25 years and my two kids of all things, my about to be 19 year old son and my 23 year old daughter never thought that I'd have the uh, full house family experience again. So that's one of the bright sides of a very dark time. Um, I have both kids at home. One finished college remotely from home. The other began college remotely from home. We're about to celebrate our second Passover of the pandemic. Uh, that was one of my early experiences of everything feeling topsy-turvy and not being with a large group of family for the satyrs. Um, and now it's about to happen again. It's just, uh, it's hard to wrap my mind around 
uh, how things have changed, but they have an upside too. And thank God we've, we've all been healthy. My parents just got their second dose of the vaccine. So I'm thrilled for them. Yeah. I'm hoping that I will be able to hug my parents sometime soon. It's been over a year. Um, and so I, you know, I guess I've been, I've been luckier than many. So I concentrate on counting our blessings uh, more than, uh, cursing, uh, the new circumstances. So what was it like sort of experiencing what they call the empty nest syndrome and then have that sort of er erased for a moment? Yeah, that's exactly. I was trying to, my wife and I, I guess we're both trying to acclimate to having, well, one kid, our daughter, Isabel, was away for just about four years for college. So, I mean, I guess we were getting used to that, although I certainly missed having her at home and uh, being able to, you know, make her breakfast and hang out and talk at family meals and things like that. And I didn't think that would ever happen again, especially because she's enamored of the East Coast and I suspect she may uh, live much of her life out there. Right. So it was kind of thrilling. You know, I, I also, at the same time that I selfishly as a parent, like having my kids around, I'm aware of the fact that they're at an age when maybe they'd like to leave. So I, I'm not sure I would wish it on them, but I will say they're both handling it well and with grace. And in some ways we're functioning better as a family foursome than we ever have. So that's a nice thing. That's incredible. Um, speaking of the East Coast, if my memory serves, you grew up on the East Coast in Westchester. That is true. I am a suburban boy, suburban New York, uh, Westchester County, New Rochelle, uh, specifically, 45 okay. minutes from Broadway, as they right. say. Right, and, which is yeah. a huge thing. That proximity is is such a, a huge, impactful thing for so many people um, who became enamored of the arts or involved in the arts because they could go see stuff. So were you seeing Broadway things um, as a young person and was your family into it? Yeah, very much so, uh, in part because my dad's best friend uh, when I was growing up and to this day is Emmanuel Eisenberg, Manny Eisenberg, one of the great sort of uh, showbiz Broadway impresarios. Yeah, uh, Neil Simon's longtime producer. And uh, I mean, if you just Google him, you'll see an incredible list of theater that he has produced. Wait, so how did your dad and Manny know each other? That's a good question. <laughs> the answer to which I should have. I, I believe they worked together many decades ago at Madison Square Garden. Um, I think that's how they first met professionally and they just became fast friends. And then uh, Manny, who's uh, whip smart and incredibly hilarious and you know, just this great bigger than life personality was like an uncle figure to me growing up. And he invited us to all his Broadway openings. So I had these, incredible opportunities to see just play after play after play. And I, um, I also came from a family with, you know, performers in it. My cousins are uh, uh, very talented and singers and actors. And my dad had a little bit of involvement uh, producing theater. He was one of the producers of um, Bach and Harnick's uh, The Rothschilds. Um, and so, yeah, I grew up in a sort of theatrical milieu, I guess. And I definitely went to a ton of theater and I just sat in the audience and I just pointed and I was like, I want to do that. 
I, I definitely knew from an early age that that's what I was or that's what I wanted to do. Although I think I experienced it as this is what I am as I you know, participated in elementary school plays and camp plays and stuff like that. It's just always what I wanted to do. Were you like a stage door manor kid or some theater camp kid? No, I didn't do that. Although I sometimes think that would have been a lot of, I mean, I, uh, I think it would have been a lot of fun and a good place for me, but I went to a uh, sports camp in Pittsfield, mm -hmm. Mass, Camp Greylock. Uh, although I always did the, you know, musical every summer. So I was still doing theater. So when did you, so you're doing it as a kid. Um, and I didn't know that you sang also. That's really good to know. And I'm going to mark that down. I will say I tended, or not even tended, I entirely played the comic roles where the level of singing is a low bar indeed. Okay, okay. fair enough. I feel like when I'm, I'm, for some reason, my Noah Emmerich episode is popping into my head right now. And I feel like, were you and Noah in some like college musical Am I having a hallucination right now? No, Why am I you're absolutely it? right. Okay. You're absolutely oh, right. The I think my sophomore year of college uh, that summer, the, or the uh, beginning of summer, the commencement musical was uh, Anything Goes. And I played Moonface Martin in it. And I really, really pressured Noah, who was in a singing group with me and plays trumpet and is talented and is a hilarious guy that I thought would be great as an actor. I really just pressured him like, audition, audition, do something in it. And, uh, and so now that he's had quite an illustrious career, I like to say that it's really all, all because of me. You are responsible for so many careers. It must be so heady. <laughs> I'm a career maker, damn it. <laughs> you are, you're like a total star maker. Um, so obviously you were also a great student because you went to Yale um, and even, you know, even if you knew people, you still have to get in on your, <laughs> own, on your own merit as well and have the grades and scores. So were you like an academic kid or was school super easy for you? So, uh, school was easy for me, which is probably uh, to suggest that taking tests was easy for me. I mean, I don't want to say that I, I certainly felt, uh, I'm sure, sure in every step of my academic career that uh, there were others uh, far smarter than I, but I was a good test taker. <laughs> I think I was generally bright. And uh, also I got to believe that at the time that I applied to the types of schools that I did, that it must've been easier to get in <laughs> than it is now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, but I, but school was relatively easy for me and uh, uh, I, I will say by the time I, I got in and went to Yale I was less academically minded I knew by then I really wanted to be an actor mm. and I sometimes look back now on my college career and uh, with a little bit of regret because right now at 55 the idea of someone else namely my parents uh, paying for me to spend four years studying whatever I want sounds fantastic. Yeah. And at the time, I was less taken with the the uh, prospect. Right. You were looking for the next move to get your career started. Yeah. I mean, my my parents did that. Uh, I think very responsible uh, Jewish parent thing. Although I'm sure it's not exclusive to Jewish parents, where they're like, "Oh, you want to be an actor? Okay, fine." And they've always been tremendously um, supportive of me. Uh, but they were certainly uh, uh, of the 
opinion that I ought to get a college degree. So I had something to fall back on. Now, I don't know when you're pursuing acting and you have uh, you know, an undergraduate Yale degree in theater studies, what it was I was planning to fall back on, but exactly. there you have it. Exactly. But were you a kid who was asking your parents if you could audition professionally as a child? I don't think I ever put a hardcore press on. I, I got the opportunity. Manny Eisenberg, again, came to a high school production I did of the Mikado, the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta. And uh, I remember he said to me afterwards, we'll talk about Broadway later. And I was very, very excited. I thought, oh, wow, what's going to happen? Yeah. And he was producing uh, the Neil Simon play Brighton Beach Memoirs at the time that Matthew Broderick starred in. And I recognized as an incredibly great role. And it was a tremendous performance for Matthew Broderick. And I saw it multiple times and I knew, boy, is that a role that I can play. And uh, he did arrange for my first professional um, auditions, which were for that show. And then for the sequel, Biloxi Blues, and then for uh, Broadway Bound, the third in the trilogy. And I never got cast, but it was my first um, opportunities to audition for something professionally. And I, I think I would have liked to do more of that and pursue more, but I, I never put a hard court, a full court press on my parents to allow me to sort of be a kid actor. And sometimes I regret that too, because I, 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 uh, I, I think I might've gotten more done earlier. My career was sort of a slow burn and maybe those extra years uh, might've helped, but I also had a good time in college and I'm, I'm glad I went. Right. But you, I mean, I remember meeting you because we're, we, we sort of started out around the same time um, when you were doing A Few Good Men. So many mm -hmm. of my friends from Naked Angels and, you know, were sort of in and involved in that production. Um, and that is sort of my memory of, of my first Molina sighting. <laughs> and that happened pretty quickly, right? After... School. Yeah, I say a slow burn, but I certainly got a huge break very early on and one, uh, you know, completely based on luck and personal relationship and my friendship with Aaron Sorkin, which I'm, I'm happy to admit, um, because again, I mentioned my cousins were really into theater in high school and they went to high school in Scarsdale, also in Westchester County, with Aaron Sorkin. And I, even as a little kid, saw Aaron in high school plays in the Scarsdale High School Drama Club. Um, I saw him with my cousins performing and so I just knew him a little bit and yeah. uh, my mother, when, when I moved to New York City, that was my first thing, I graduated from college in 88, moved to New York City with a plan to be an actor and to be specifically a theater actor and to pursue that, but I didn't really have much of a plan or a strategy in place and my mother sort of casually suggested once that I should call Aaron Sorkin because um, he's in the city. And I think it was literally like Jewish geography. It was kind of like, well, you know, you're right. Jewish, he's Jewish. And I was like, mom, I'm just gonna cold call Jews until I have a career. Yes. But <laughs> I am a good Jewish boy and I do tend to listen to my mom and I took her <laughs> advice, thank goodness. And I did call Aaron and we became buddies very quickly. Uh, he, was, he would have these once or twice a week poker games. And I was a big poker player then and still am. And, got to be friends with him uh, uh, over the poker table. And I'm not even sure I was aware that he was a writer at that time. I think I just knew him as an actor. And 
he did casually mention that he had written this play and they were going to produce it and they were going to produce it on Broadway. And do you want to audition? And I was like, are you kidding me? I've got, I got nothing, buddy. I would love to. And he arranged for me to audition. And I, you know, I have no idea whether I was any good at that audition, but you know, Aaron wanted me in the play. And next thing I knew, I got this phone call. I was going to be in the play. There were five of us who played small roles, but we had multiple speaking roles throughout the play. And we also moved chairs around and helped so it was it was sort of cleverly staged where we, we helped move the scenery and stuff and we um understudied the leads and i was understudying three major roles and, and i was in a broadway show like my you know my childhood dream so Incredible. it was it was a little bit like aaron had waved a wand uh over my head and said i i grant thee your first wish so aaron was an actor yes yeah. And uh, he, I mean, I don't know how long he pursued professional acting because he had right. such uh, success as an actor, so uh, as a writer so quickly. Right. But uh, I know I saw him uh, at the West Bank in a production of uh, a one-act play called Hidden in This Picture that uh, he co-starred in. And he was fantastic. Like, he was a very talented, excellent stage actor. But somehow his very first play ended up being a Broadway production. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know, really. It's all so unlikely. Yeah. Uh, it's an astonishing story. I, I, you know, it, it's less likely if you take into account what a good writer he is. But right. still, um, even to have that talent, how it was discovered so early right. and somehow it was going to be made into a movie and Aaron had the balls as a whatever he was, 26-year-old writer to say to Rob Reiner that he wanted it to, to be produced as a play first and to insist on that and uh, and it all kind of magically happened and it was just a, an incredibly golden era in my life and career. That is incredible. That's incredible for both of you and that you know people talk so much about loyalty but when I read your resume, it, it, it is obviously, look, no one's putting you in something if you're not good. Obviously, you're not a charity case of Aaron Sorkin's. Um, and you've been so right in all the things that he's put you in. But your partnership is pretty extraordinary and unusual. And yeah. Hollywood, these things don't often go the way the person who wants to hire their friend wants it to happen. It just doesn't always happen. They don't always have the power to make sure that that happens. So how is it that, because it took a minute for Aaron to become someone with the power that he has um, to make all the decisions. Was it easy for him to get you onto sports night? Were there other things in between that you guys did first together between A Few Good Men and sports night? That's a good question. Yes, he, he, well, I mean, in candor, he, he provided all my early breaks in theater, which we've now covered in film yeah. and in TV. Yeah. And I guess film came between theater and TV because uh, I had a very small role, but it was nonetheless thrilling uh, in A Few Good Men, where right. I had five words, three of them, yes, two of them, sir, but spoken to Jack Nicholson. So I was like, wow. So exciting. Like, yes, I was thrilled. It was, yeah. you know, in some ways an inauspicious film debut and others, yeah. it was, you know, couldn't have been more exciting. Uh, and then I had move a- move on from that, is there any like little, like spark of a moment of Nicholson? I mean, for a guy your age, Nicholson is just one of those icons. Um, yeah. 
what like aside from the pinch me moment of it all are there things that he did or said or that you recall many years now in the past um, absolutely tell me yeah. like a nicholson story yeah i'll say like one inspiring and one embarrassing the inspiring okay. one was first of all it couldn't have treated me better he, he okay. would uh I don't know if he knew my name was Josh, but he called me Tom, which was the name of my character. Oh, Tom. And he was uh, nice and uh, Kiefer Sutherland was in the scene. And um, uh, first I remember that when it came time to shoot my single, which was basically me at the door and he's uh, uh, Colonel Jessup calling just his aide Tom to come in and, you know, calls Tom, I come to the door, yes, sir. Uh, get the president on the phone, we're surrendering our position in Cuba. And I go, yes, sir. And I start to leave because I oh, wait a minute, um, maybe not. And, and then I leave. So it's a tiny little multi-second roll. So when it came time to shoot my single, which is to say the camera's now pointed at the door and we've already shot uh, Jack's side, which has most of the dialogue, um, you know, he stood off camera and did his full performance for me so that I could say, yes, sir to Colonel Jessup. And it just sort of struck me because I've been in situations um, where sometimes a big star will kind of do shoot their side of a scene and then leave. And it hasn't happened a lot, but it, it has happened to me where I'm like, yeah, yeah. And, and now I always think Jack Nicholson stood off camera so that I could say yes sir to him and did all his dialogue. Like, okay. who are you? Yeah. So that was an early, uh, and does um, that impact you when you're working and you're sort of higher up on the call sheet? Do you make sure to be super present for the people you're working with in, in part? Absolutely. I feel like, yeah. yeah, I feel like I learned an early lesson that uh, in film work, and I mean, it seems obvious, but that's where I learned the lesson that half your job is when you're off camera and you have to give as much as you're giving when you're on camera uh, so that the other person can do their best. And yeah. so, yeah, it was just good. Um, it's, it's surprising to me sometimes um, uh, when you see people, and, and you know, in some ways, so little is asked of the actor. I mean, the, the, it's the intangible that is the difficult thing, the talent part. <laughs> but in terms of specifics, you know, you have to show up at a specific place at a specific time, knowing your lines. <laughs> and that's about it. Like, yep, that's the job. So when people don't know their lines or aren't on time, I'm like, wow. Those are the only two things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and yeah. What was and the embarrassing it... Nicholson? Oh, the embarrassing thing was that when I did do the first take of my side, uh, and then I left, the, I heard Reiner, Rob Reiner directed the film, he yelled, cut. And then I heard just boisterous laughter. And at first I thought, are they laughing at me? Did they do something wrong? And then I hear them sort of enjoying their, I mean, I don't know what else I could have done, but the moment is kind of funny. He says, you know, get the president on the phone. We're surrendering our position in Cuba and I'm a Marine. I don't question him. I just leave to go get the president, which is just the way it's written. So I was thinking like, I don't know what I brought to it, but they're laughing. Oh, he's such a Marine. He didn't question my order. He just went out there. And now in my head, I'm getting giddy and I'm like, wow, I'm just killing it. I'm nailing it. <laughs> they're laughing and they love it. And we did the second take and this time, I, I, my head was so swimming with my triumph that I forgot to leave. I forgot to start to do the part where I'm about to leave or yes, sir. And then he stops me. So I just stood there like adult and <laughs> being as green as you possibly can be as a screen actor, it didn't occur to me that, you know, they can edit and like, I can just leave now, now that I realize I'm supposed to and I didn't. 
and eventually Rob Reiner was just like cut and he's like Josh you you didn't leave I'm like oh yeah sorry so it's just like <laughs> I had one really good take and then one take where I was like obviously I don't even know anything about film right I'm know. terrible and I'm gonna be fired oh I was so embarrassed I'm like oh yeah sorry I'll but, leave next time but alas you were not fired no thank goodness they had pity on me yes um so the point being that you got to do that and some other things yeah so there were other there were other Aaron um gifts if you will I had a small part in the movie Malice Mm -hmm. um and then yeah and then you know and then I I got some other jobs on my own but I wasn't doing too much and I thought I was going to move to Los Angeles when I did uh and have immediate success as a sitcom guy. I really just thought that was sort of where my bread and butter might be as an actor. Um, But it it didn't happen for me. And I certainly not for lack of trying, had plenty of auditions, could never quite close the deal. I suspect um, in part, I think I'm not great at auditioning. I think it's not my uh, forte and I'm not sure in the uh, ensuing 30 years that I ever quite cracked the code. I mean, now we're here in the pandemic and uh, so we're forced to audition through self-taping. And uh, I still, my heart falls every time I get an audition, even though it's an opportunity potentially to get a job. I'm just like, oh no, I gotta make another one of these terrible self-tapes. Have you gotten jobs from auditions or do you get jobs that are offers and also audition as part of your life? I definitely have gotten jobs from auditioning, um, but I still know that I'm not great at it. And you know, I'm, I always lean towards, you know, I always tell my agents, if you can keep me out of the room, this is my best bet for getting the job. <laughs> not because I'm a diva, like, because there's, a, you know, sometimes you go, well, this job, I don't, I don't even care that much about it. Yeah. Let's offer only it, you know, and they'll, so they'll say offer only. He's not going to come read for it, but uh, if you want to offer it to him. And I'm like, you know, it, it, it's not because I think I should be offered stuff. I'm like, if I show them how I'm going to play the role, I'm a lot less likely to get them. So I, I'm at a point where I do get offered a fair amount of stuff, which is nice and I love it. But, uh, you know, I'm, I still need to audition to pursue, uh, you know, plenty of jobs and I'm happy to do it. Like there's nothing at all um, uh, unreasonable about somebody saying, well, I'd like to see <laughs> your approach to this role before I hire you. Like yeah. that's a very, very reasonable thing to do. Not I just yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm not great at closing the deal there. Did you, you know, the, the, the part of you that um, has a reputation of being someone, you know, George Clooney, you, there are a bunch of people who are known for being pranksters. <laughs> I was wondering where you're going with that, because I'm not often grouped with George Clooney. Well, I'm here with little known fact, my friend, that <laughs> you are. Um, and, and it takes a very, um, th- there's a kind of confidence that has to be connected to the person who is um, the prankster in ah. certain way, A, in terms of feeling confident that even with a certain level of, of silliness, and, and we'll talk about the, the depths of your pranks, that you can still get your work done, that it doesn't affect your being able to do what you need to do, because no one has ever said that Josh doesn't do his work or can't do well in his part because he's so intent on creating mischief. 
<laughs> that. But it, not everyone would have the confidence to feel like I can do all of these things to people above me on the call sheet or my bosses without risk of their job going away. So how did you know, how did you find that sweet spot of still being, I mean, I'm assuming you're still beloved. You work all the time. You're not someone who hasn't been hired because of it. Certainly from what I can tell, you can tell me if you've heard otherwise. So like, what is that? Yeah, I think I like to tread that line. And I suspect uh, if you were to round up everyone I've ever worked with, you could find maybe someone or two who's like, you know what, he's an I. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan. Right. Um, and I do like to kind of push the envelope. I mean, I think my, my penchant for pranks uh, is just that there's a lot of waiting around on sets. And I like to keep things like light and I like to laugh. And, uh, you know, my own... Uh, a technique such as it is or approach to acting, I think is that I can usually, uh, you know, be laughing and joking around until moments before it's time to actually mm -hmm. do the work. And, and that kind of helps me. And I, I, I'm certainly, I know that I've worked with people that don't work that way. And I, I don't try to inflict my levity on somebody who I, who I, who I know. Process. What's that? You're respectful of someone else's process. Yes, exactly. I, you know, I hope there's nobody out there who's like, my God, he was joking around the whole time. I just needed two minutes of quiet before right. we, before they yelled action. So I, I try not to be that guy, like just the asshole who's ruining it for anyone else. Um, but I, I, I like to keep things light. I like to have fun. And uh, but how did it start? Like, were you doing this as, as a kid growing up? Were you doing this with... Wait, do you have... Yes, you I have definitely... What's that? I know you have cousins, but do you have siblings also? Yes, I have two sisters, a sister who's two and a half years older than I and a sister who's eight years younger than I. Okay. And um, my parents are very funny. My sisters, Toby and Nicole, are both funny. So, I mean, I've always been, for better or worse, uh, laughing and trying to make someone else laugh has always been my prime directive. Okay. <laughs> so so uh, that's just sort of... And, and, and I, you know, I, I think you could look at my career and not guess that that's the case because my career has been nothing like what I think I'm good at and what I thought I would do. So I'm both simultaneously very thankful that I've had any work of any kind over the years and also at a loss as to why I haven't been able to do more comedy or do what I what I think, maybe I'm just wrong, what, what I think is my strong suit. Like, what was like, are you thinking like, I, I thought I'd be on Will and Grace. Like what, what did you think? I mean, because obviously Aaron, the way he writes and the kind of seriousness, even when it's very funny, the kind of intellectual element that he brings to everything he does. Um, and then you got onto Scandal, which, you know, our dramas, they're funny, but it's, it's obviously not, you know, sitcom-y. Um, what did you think? Like, what would, what did you see? Did you think you'd be on Friends? Like, what was your sweet spot in yes. your mind? It, I would say even specifically Friends because right. Friends I, I did audition for and I read for Chandler, the, the role of Chandler. And I remember reading that script and thinking, this part is made for me. Mm -hmm. I'm not like, I, I certainly didn't have the hubris to think like, I'm going to get this role, right. but I thought, if I can get this role, like this is gonna, th there's a career to be made from playing this guy. And 
it actually was one of the worst <laughs> audition experiences I've ever had. Um, and I remember like it was yesterday just because it was so huge to me. Like it was a real opportunity and I loved the character and I thought it was such a great uh, chance. And then Marta Kaufman who created it or co-created it or yeah. that's, who, that's who I was reading for. And she never looked up. She was, I've, I've never, I haven't, I had not had this before. Haven't had it since. She was looking down at some notes so intently that I finally just said, because I was standing in front of her, I said, should I, should I start? And she said, sure. Okay. And then I auditioned and she never looked at me. <laughs> the worst. That's yeah, I mean, and I don't know what it was. I walked in and maybe she immediately knew that I was not the guy. Um, but I walked out and I was like, wow, I guess I'm not going to be playing this role. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I thought I would be like a sitcom guy. I'm sure I had, uh, you know, other uh, ambition as well. But even in A Few Good Men, when, when the time came, I think eight months into the Broadway run, Aaron said to me, well, you know, some, some actors were leaving. And Aaron said to me, which role do you want to play? Do you want to play PFC Downey or Corporal Howard? Two of the roles that I had been understudying. And I remember I couldn't believe he was saying I could play either role. One was a small role um, that had one really funny scene. The audience claps at the end and hilarious. Like it's just a complete Josh role. Mm -hmm. And then he was also offering me if I wanted to take over the role of PFC Loudon, this sort of corn fed Iowa Marine who's on trial for murder, like this dramatic role. Like yeah. who, would, who would cast me as, I couldn't believe it. And I, so I chose that one because I was just astounded that I was like, I don't know, can I even do this? Like, I just didn't even see, am I this kind of actor? And I played that role for six months and it was a fantastic opportunity. Yeah. Um, and then looking back sometimes I think, well, maybe I should have just played the other role. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should have done the thing I think I'm better at. Right. You know, you never know what people are gonna see you as, but I've learned that even though I now live, you know, that was New York, I now live in Los Angeles, which has at least some claim to be the world capital of imagination. I've learned that despite that, <laughs> mainly what people think of you as is the last thing you did. Mm -hmm. I was like, huh. So all of a sudden, even when I was on Scandal, which is recently, I was yeah. like, how on earth am I playing <laughs> the Attorney General of the United States? Like, right. Well, how, I mean, it's a big jump, but how on earth did that happen? Well, I, uh, I mean, I think in part because my career as it has progressed uh, and it's been a roller coaster with, you know, great things happening and then certainly long periods of like, wow, I guess I'm done. Mm -hmm. um, and it came at a good time. It came during <laughs> a trough of, wow, I'm not working much. Right. And I got an opportunity to audition for Shonda Rhimes and I had done an episode of I know she was a big sports night and West Wing fan and she was lovely to me when she gave me episodes of Grey's Anatomy and Private Practice and so I know she knew me well mm -hmm. and this the I had the opportunity to audition for the uh pilot of Scandal I knew it was not for a regular and I was like oh, I would do anything for Shonda I'd be happy yeah. to and I went and I auditioned and it was a brief scene. And I remember, I, I remember that audition very specifically too, uh, because when I finished, she turned to the director, Paul McQuigan, the, the director of the pilot and said, well, that's all I need to see. 
And I remember I went, I left and I called my agent. And I said that either I'm never going to work for her again, or I, or I think I might've gotten it. Like I couldn't tell whether it was good or bad, but that's right. all I need to see felt like, it felt very definitive. And in the pilot, was it a series regular or was it a recurring role at the time? Yeah, that, no, I knew it wasn't a series regular, right. so but- What's that? Less pressure. Yeah, far less pressure. And to my delight, that meant that it would not require subsequent auditions because, right. you know, I'm sure people who listen to your podcast know there's, you know, normally you would do that, go for the producer creator type, then they'd maybe bring you in for the studio and then they'd make a test deal and put you in front of the network. And that, even though I, I in lots of circumstances, I don't get nervous, the whole job and the many layers of trying to get a series regular job just takes it out of me and I feel like you know as I said I'm, I don't know how great I am at auditioning in the first place but by the time I've done it multiple times and I'm signing a contract for six and a half years before I go in in front of the network I'm just like a puddle I'm just like I can't do this this is too much it's so, so heady it's so heady also just seeing these numbers that are oh. that are actual nonsense because it's just a piece of paper but yes. it all feels intensely pressurized Have yes you, i did you i can multiply any number by 22 people? in my head no i know because <laughs> i've spent a long time doing that <laughs> i know i know um did you ever test for a pilot and get it um Yes, I, t I did have to test for sports night. I know I think we were trying to work our way towards sports night way back when. Right back there, perfect. Yes, I auditioned multiple times for Josh Charles's role in sports night. And I felt like I had a real shot at it. And that was another one where people now laugh at me. They're like, oh, you were, you, you as Dan Rydell, like who can imagine it? Just because Josh was so great and so indelible. I was like, but yeah, at the time, I, I definitely knew that was a great role for me. And I went, as I often did when I was waiting to hear important news, and I was playing poker at one of the card clubs in LA, and I got a call from Aaron, and I raced outside so I could talk to him privately. And uh, he said, it's not going to happen. And I just utterly deflated because I loved Sports Night, the pilot, and yeah. I loved the role. And I felt like, uh, I remember it was multiple days of auditioning with pairing people together and working with Tommy Shlami and Aaron. It was just this whole heady time where I thought if I was finally, and I was 30 already and like hadn't gotten a pilot in the seven years I'd been in LA. And it, this was a level of lack of success that I really hadn't anticipated. I thought by now I would have done a pilot and whether yeah. or not I went to series or something, I just was not having the success I'd hoped for and, uh, and uh, immodestly expected. Yeah. And and then I didn't get the job. And then uh, as I remembered a couple of days later, Aaron called me and said, you know, the role of Jeremy, it's, he's the production, you know, or a guy who's um, applying for the associate producer job. And I think it was smaller in the original pilot. And uh, he was written as like a 25 or 23 year old guy. He said, well, what, what if I beefed it up a little bit and I made him a little bit older? And I interrupted and I said, Aaron, are you trying to sell me on playing a different role in the pilot? I, I would be very interested. <laughs> you don't have to, I don't need to know anymore. If you think there's something in there that I can do, I'd be delighted. And so I did have to test, although it was a different kind of uh, circumstance from usual. Uh, it was a test where I was just in the 
um, room with Jamie Tarsus, who recently passed away and yeah. was just a, a lovely and talented person, yeah. and uh, Stu Bloomberg, uh, the two sort of muckety mucks of ABC at the time. And it was just in, I think maybe Stu's office and Felicity Huffman very kindly was at the audition to read with me just as a favor and as a kindness. And Aaron was in the room and we just read this sort of a big uh, um, job interview scene with a really funny speech in there. And I did it and they asked me to go wait in the hall and I walked out into the hall and then not long after Aaron burst out, literally grabbed me and held me aloft. <laughs> I remember saying, if this is your way of telling, telling me I didn't get it, I'm going to be very disappointed. That um, is incredible. Yeah. He's like such a brother. It, it, he's been incredible to me. I, I wish there were, uh, you know, anything I could do to pay him back other than thank him as I have many, many times over the years. Yeah. I mean, in, in part, I think hosting my podcast, I won't say I didn't do it also for selfish reasons, mm -hmm. but it was also a little bit of a way to say thank you for making me part of that. And thank you for everything uh, you've done for my career and as a friend. Well, that podcast is such a love letter to that show and that time. And, and, and that too has sort of, it's amazing the ripple effect of that in terms of bringing a whole new audience who might not have, you know, watched the show the first time around and ended up getting so into it. Did you, yeah, like, I... do you like podcasting? Was that something you guys, how did you even kind of conceive of that as, as a, I mean, what a great idea, but a lot of people weren't doing that yet. Now it's yeah. a popular thing, the behind the scenes thing, but how did that, what was the brainchild and how did that happen? Yeah, well, Rishikesh Hirway, who's a good friend of mine and who went to Yale, I think, 12 years after I did and sort of looked me up when he moved to L.A. Okay. Um, and we just became friends. I mean, I think he wanted my advice. Uh, I think I don't know how much I was able to help him because he was interested in scoring for film. Mm -hmm. um, and I think my main advice was to move to L.A. But we became friends quickly. We he is an absolute dynamo engine of creativity and ideas. And uh, we produced, although ultimately nothing happened with it, uh, a TV pilot for a celebrity driven game show together. And he had a very successful and still does <clears throat> podcast called Song Exploder. And he kept pitching me this idea that we should do what would become the West Wing Weekly. And I, I was very, hesitant. I didn't know that whether I'd be good at it. I said, look, frankly, I don't, I don't know anything about the West Wing. <laughs> I mean, I was a fan of it before I was on it. And then I was on it and had an amazing uh, experience. But I don't know. I don't know if I can talk about every episode for an right. hour or an hour and a half. Like, I don't know what is there to even say. And he just kept on me and kept on me. And finally, he said, go watch the pilot. And I rewatched the pilot, which I had watched when it was originally on. And uh, I was like, oh, I get it now. Like, it really is a great show. There is a lot to it. Um, it, it unlike a lot of TV, it, it, there's enough substantive stuff happening in every episode that you could have an interesting conversation. And then we sort of just uh, gave it a shot and recorded one. And I realized how much fun it was just to talk to a friend about yeah. TV that I liked. Yeah. 
And were you doing it together in a studio or were you doing it remotely from your own homes at the beginning? We would do it remotely, recording into our own external mics and you know, looking at each other uh, with headphones on over right. FaceTime. Right. So it was like uh, hanging with a friend. Did you have to get permission to do that? We, we didn't really. We talked to a lawyer and we have a yeah. lawyer and uh, we were advised that we could probably use clips uh, under uh, the uh, concept of fair use, as long as we kept them um, somewhat brief and weren't playing minutes and minutes of dialogue right, at a clip. Right. And then the feeling was that Warner Brothers would probably be delighted if it brought more viewers to the show. And I think very quickly it did. In fact, I read and ran into Ted Sarandos from Netflix, who's like the number two guy there, terrific person. And we had not been on for very long. And he said, oh my God, you should see the numbers. In fact, we talked about having him on the podcast, but it never happened so that he could discuss the numbers of viewers that were coming to the West Wing on, at that time, Netflix. So they could sort of see that the obvious connection between the two the two things happening. Yeah, talk yeah. about, um, I knew, I've known Bradley Whitford for a really long time. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, Allison Janney is one of my oldest friends. And I really remember, I remember her, I think I ran lines with her before she was going in to audition for that show. And so wow. that moment in time is so, um, I don't know, it's very, I, I remember it really well. I mean, it was, you know, to see one of my best friends who was having trouble being cast and appreciated. Yeah. Um, not only get cast, but so, first of all, Allison was the most non-political person on the planet. <laughs> yeah, as she would admit, yes. Yes, yes. And certainly since then has become so well-versed in what it means to, you know, work in a White House and, and has become really politically active. But that was not where she lived at the time. Um, and, and all of those, you know, Janelle and Richard Chip, all of those people who, who became really recognizable were not particularly, I mean, Martin Short and Rob Lowe and, and John Spencer and Stockard Channing were recognizable. And it I was think he said Martin Short. Say Martin Short. <laughs> Which is really, really, I would, I would now like to see the sketch with Martin Short playing uh, Bartlett. Maybe I'm that Martin Short was originally cast as the president <laughs> of, uh, sorry, Mr. Sheen. Um, you know, it was that moment where your friends were getting these parts on an NBC series and it was really exciting and it made everything feel possible. Huh. Um, and, and then you joined the show and suddenly, I don't know, did you know Brad Whitford before you got cast on, the, on West Wing? I did actually. I knew Brad going all the way back to A uh, Few Good Men in New York because I think around 1990 he um, joined the cast. He replaced Clark Gregg as uh, Jack Ross and then he eventually took over the role of Kathy, um, the, the, the lead role in the Broadway production. And so uh, we became friends then. Okay. And did that kind of um, obviously it's become a more significantly known rivalry slash hilarious <laughs> fun thing that you guys have. But did that dynamic start between you guys back in that play? 
I can't even really remember is the honest. I certainly remember pranking him and just, you know, he was just one of those people who uh, likes to laugh as much as I do and likes to joke around. And I, uh, I recognized that in him and appreciated it. So I think probably, yes, there was a little bit of uh, friendly rivalry. It's, uh, you know, social media has made it completely explode <laughs> where it's just like, we, wow, there's an outlet where in front of hundreds of thousands of people, we can take shots at each other relentlessly. Yeah. No, I also millions, like to- Josh, millions. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess so, yeah. He, uh, I, I mean, I'd like to point out that he, he, I am punching up and he's punching down. There is no competition between us as to who's a more successful actor. He's got, you know, a mantle full of awards to prove it. He's done far more uh, than I have. So like, I like to point out again, I'm taking shots at somebody who's in an elevated position. He's just punching down at me, which is right. really- So that's sad. So that's just yeah, It's sad. really just, he it's really just time. pathetic. <laughs> is it one of the, um most happy making relationships in your life? Yes, I, I really enjoy, I mean, obviously, I, and I think anybody who's paying any attention knows that, that I love Brad and I'm fond of him and he makes me laugh. And I, you know, half the time he'll, you know, he's, he's more of a, uh, I like to say he's a volume tweeter and I'm, I go more for quality. So he probably takes shots uh, at me 10 to one because, uh, he just goes for volume over quality. But when, on the rare occasion, when he's actually clever and is insulting of me, I will retweet it myself. I will celebrate his viciousness when it is funny. Um, so yes, I thoroughly enjoy it. I also enjoy the sort of performance art aspect of social media, mm -hmm. which is that not caring too much what people think of you or even if they misunderstand you. So occasionally, I mean, there definitely are a lot of people who think that Brad and I hate each other and I don't mind that. Right. You know, I want to ask you about something, which is raising kids in LA um, during as an actor, and it's sort of, I'm, I'm going to use the word lull, I'm not sure that that's how you described it earlier, but sort of these ebbs and flows of career moments. Obviously, as an observer, one would think that Josh Molina has had a dream career filled with working with friends on incredible material, on incredibly uh, well-respected shows, long-lasting shows, and a variety of roles, including being on Shameless. I mean, talking about Felicity, you know, working with Bill, her husband now, I mean, the full yes. circleness of all of that. But, you know, LA is a town where it's like everyone works in the coal mines. And if you're not in a mine, it feels really bad. And when you're mm -hmm. in a mine, it feels really good. Um, everyone's, you know, every other parent at your school is somehow connected. What is it like or what was it like? I mean, your kids are older now. I don't know if they're interested in, in being a part of the arts or not, if it was something, you know, that was in the, the water or in the DNA mm -hmm. or if they're on a whole other path. But how did you handle being in LA, raising kids and dealing with those feelings when you weren't working? Yeah, these are all great questions. And I'll say, first of all, anybody who has that, I love that. It's a lovely description of my career from someone else's point of view. Um, and it's a, an utter illusion because I've certainly had um, 
some success and certainly some great times. I've been more, you know, it's funny how you can hold two things at once. And I would say I am looking at my career both incredibly grateful for the massive amount of luck that I've had. Um, some of that luck being, you know, meeting Aaron Sorkin, becoming friends with him and having him be such a loyal person who would give me roles in these incredible things that he wrote. Um, other luck would be, you know, getting the role in Scandal and, you know, once you even get a role in the, uh, and then it turned into a regular spot and then that show turned into a hit. Like it's literally like a little bit like playing lottery for a living. Yeah. And uh, so I've had a tremendous amount of uh, uh, luck in my career. And at the same time, I can hold the fact that, you know, I have disappointment too, that, you know, I've had so many times where somebody will sometimes look at my IMDb page and say, look, wow, 80 things, 80, what a career. And I go, yeah, that's 80 times I lost my job. Mm -hmm. 80 times it ended. And believe me or don't, but every time I worried about whether I would work again. And sometimes between uh, any two, it was a year or eight months. And you know, the bills didn't stop coming in. So I've had plenty of time where I've been super stressed out. I mean, some of it is, it's a luxury to be worried about your career when you still have some money in the bank. And that's like, oh yeah, I'm jealous of him. Or, you know, I, 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 and I love how you were talking about your friends who were getting cast in the West Wing because I've always felt the same way too. Like I don't, if I ever got to the point where I begrudged my friends the success I was pursuing or hoping for, then I think I would have quit. It's like, I'm always happy for my friends. Like, yeah, I want to be doing that too. But yeah, that's a that's if they can work, maybe I can get some work. Like it always seemed like a good thing. I never uh, resented anyone else's success. But yeah, you're surrounded by um, people who are pursuing the same thing, and some uh, much more successfully. And so there have been down times when, yeah, I, you know, I wish I were a little bit busier. But there have been also horrible times where I'm wondering how I'm going to be the dad I'm supposed to be and provide for my family. Like it, it is a risky thing to pursue and I have learned the hard way that it's not an easy to make a living all the time and that there's feast and famine or if you're lucky there's feast <laughs> but there's yeah. certainly going to be famine and so I've tried as I was saying with the pandemic and trying to see the bright side I do try to live a very grateful life and so I see the upside too of being a dad who is often and has been often out of work and like my daughter was in high school, I used to volunteer in the school library every Friday morning. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, if I was one of those guys with a steady job, I wouldn't be able to do this. Right. And, you know, I was a chaperone on trips to DC and trips to Sacramento. And, you know, I was around and right. uh, being around as a parent counts for a lot. So I would say even the downtimes have had their sort of silver lining. I saw earlier, um, maybe last year, maybe longer now, um, that your wife opened up a flower shop. Yes. Is that something that is still happening? Or Alas, no. Yeah. Well, it, and it, 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 before the pandemic, she decided, to, it had been a lifelong dream to have a shop and uh, a flower shop, but she also sold books and beautiful mm -hmm. things and prints. And uh, we had an incredibly great time together because I got involved too and right. um, shopping with her and working yeah, at the store. It. 
Yeah, and she's amazing, and she built a beautiful, magical place, and it was uh, very successful, but it was taking really sure, sort of 24 hours a day, seven days a week of her time, and I think uh, she felt um, encroaching on the time she wanted to spend as a mom, so she she did close the store. I'm hoping it'll, uh, you know, reemerge in another sort of manifestation sometime down the road, because it was a very that was a magical time in our lives together too. And to do something together. Is it true that you met somehow connected to Tim Busfield or is this not true? No, that is true. Tim, at the time that he joined the Broadway production of A Few Good Men, taking over for Tom Hulse, who originated the role, um, Tim was married at that time to my wife's sister. And I became friends with Tim and Jenny. And Jenny said to me, really apropos of kind of nothing one day, she said, if, if you ever meet my sister, you're gonna marry her. And I thought, okay, <laughs> whatever you say, but whatever it was you recognize, and I don't know that she's ever been able to articulate what it was other than that she just knew. Um, huh. I, I would meet Melissa, you know, a year and a half or two years later in Los Angeles, and I was just like a thunderbolt. Uh, you know, I was immediately struck by this incredibly brilliant, beautiful, funny person, and uh, we've been in love since. That is incredible. Yeah, she just knew. I love that. I mean, it's magic. Truly, yeah. Um, are your kids interested in being actors? They are not, I think, to my delight. My daughter is interested in the arts, but the fine arts, she majored in art history. Uh, she's working in a, an art gallery in Los Angeles currently, and I think uh, wants to go back, I don't think, I know, would like to go back east um, uh, to get her master's and uh, then pursue a, a career in some aspect of the art world. Mm. And my son is a very accomplished skater, skateboarder, um, and also incredible uh, like design guy. He has an amazing eye, he sews, he makes things. And uh, so I suspect he will pursue something uh, in a creative field, but I don't know what it will be. But he's, and I always say, cause he's incredibly funny and probably would be a great actor, but I'm certainly not pushing him in that direction. And that's not, that's just not his inclination, but I think he would be a fine actor. He's very funny. So skateboarding is an entire culture and it is truly higher. I mean, I have a 14 year old son who really loves it and I'm constantly watching stuff on YouTube with him. And, you know, mid nineties was a film that was incredibly yes. impactful and all of those kids who are kind of becoming actors, um, you know, skateboarding. Yeah, actually, Avi's friend, Sonny is the star yeah. of that movie, yeah. Okay, so there you go. He's like a hero to so many. Um, I find it as a parent, and I think this would be true for anyone who has an athlete as a child, um, it's an incredibly dangerous sport. And there's also a tremendous amount of trespassing. <laughs> oh, oh, a lot of the stories I could tell you. Uh, both of those things have- Right, it's like, please don't kill yourself and you're on the top of a bank. Like these are, <laughs> these are yeah. all terrible things. Um, so how do you, do you have any advice about how to handle um, skateboarding when it takes over 
your life in ways that you uh, well i don't know how the helmet war is going with you but you know as long as you can force them to wear a helmet i have to say i do i love the skate world and as much as it maybe has a bad rap of being a bunch of like you know stone kids who are you know trespassing on your property i found it to be an incredibly diverse like welcoming open tolerant uh you know, has friends all over all over the country that he's met through skating mm. and socio socioeconomically diverse ethnically diverse They're, they hug each other they say i love you man like it's i love the culture of skating i actually think these uh, uh, uh skaters by and large are wonderful and cool and tolerant and uh, i've just met so many great kids um i do wish there was somebody prominent who was like hey it's cool to wear a helmet but <laughs> That, yeah. that, that doesn't seem to exist. I know, I know. And my son is recovering from uh, leg surgery right now. From because of it, because a, a of bad, the Yes, a very bad break he got skating. And so, yeah, I mean, I, he's been a such a serious skater for so long that I've gotten used to it. But I, I, I you know, early on it was cringy to watch because obviously we all worry about our kids. Yeah. When you, um, when you look back now on what it's been like, first of all, congratulations. It is not easy. There are fewer jobs happening. And so the idea that you ended up on Shameless right now is really miraculous. I do feel, yeah, I feel, I feel extremely lucky. And it, a funny story too is, and this is just the nature of the business. I was talking to a friend and uh, I won't say who it was, although I guess it would only hurt me I probably could but I was talking to him and I he said what are you up to and I said oh, I got this uh, uh it's now turned into a reg uh, recurring thing but it was I got this episode of Shameless he goes oh the cop I said what do you mean he goes oh the funny cop part and I said oh my god why couldn't you do it I knew immediately that it had been offered to him <laughs> and he's like what do you mean I said dude obviously this was offered to you just tell me because I well I was going to be out of at a you know out of town I was Did like, great. I'm who it is? What's that? Who was it? I feel like I probably shouldn't. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, it might upset him or something. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you off the uh, off really the air. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate um, that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like, there's another like a lucky thing. Like, oh, this friend of mine who got the job first couldn't do it, and then not uh, so much of it, but it doesn't make it any less yours. And right. I mean, I never. I'm like, you know, I'm never gonna. Uh, you know, either pretend that what it didn't happen that way, or you know, yeah, I'm yeah, fine with yeah. my friend Aaron giving me parts. I'm fine with this other friend turning down a role that I got. Like that's the nature of it. Who knows? I I may have never gotten a role that went to me first. Well, um, before I let you go, can you tell me a little known fact about Josh Molina? Hmm. Yeah, I think I think I mean we touched on it, but I am a huge fan of musicals. And my early amateur career was playing, you know, comic roles in all sorts of musicals. And, you know, if I had my druthers, I would do that again. I would love, you know, I would love nothing more than to appear in a musical, to play King George in Hamilton, or um, to have somebody revive Guys and Dolls so I could play the role of Nathan Detroit for a fourth time, having played it in a Y, WHA production in high school and in college. 
Well, Josh Molina, obviously, as you know, we are in what is called intermission slash pause right now in That's the right. world. But as soon as everyone is vaccinated and it is safe for us to gather and commune in a theater, which really is the best place in the world, um, I want to see you and I will be there and I will be cheering you on. And I would love to see you. Cannot thank you enough for being on the podcast today. Thank you, sweet friend. This is great fun. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Hey guys, one more thing. Have you been considering contributing to the podcast? Well, I for one would be so grateful if you enjoyed this episode or all the hundreds of episodes I've made in the past and all the episodes that are coming to you in the future and want to donate a little something, just head over to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. It couldn't be easier to do. No donation too small. Every donation just filled with gratitude from me. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Until next week. The episode was edited by Nicholas Klar. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa.